Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Nick Lannon. Nick is the pastor at Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Ordained in 2007, Nick has pastored churches in Jersey City, Denville, New Jersey, and Louisville, Kentucky. An avid movie watcher, NBA fan, and all-around couch potato, Nick is fascinated by the intersection of the gospel and everyday life. He was called to pastor Grace Anglican Church in September of 2018. He's the author of Life is Impossible and That's Good News and co-author with Tully and Chavidian of the devotional It Is Finished, 365 Days of Good News. I give you Nick Lennon. Nick, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's a pleasure to be here. You are coming to us live from Louisville, Kentucky. Live's the only way to be. I mean, live to tape, really. But, oh, right. Uh, well, it's live to tape, but you know, live enough for us. You're at Grace Anglican Church there, so if people are looking for a wonderful dose of godly gospel-centered Anglicanism, yours is the place to be in Kentucky and Louisville. I, I hear that's right. The only place to be. Well, here we got some interesting texts. Our first lection, as they say, comes to us from the book of Hosea, and this is from the first chapter, uh, verses 2 through 10. I think Hosea is only in lectionary like twice in the whole cycle in, in year C, and, and sort of, I think the next passage jumps all the way to like chapter 11 or something. So, Which is funny because you need, uh, you need some of the rest of Hosea to understand what we have in this week's reading. <laughs> you really can't skip over it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of passage here, and where Hosea is told to take a wife of whoredom. Whoredom. And have, you know, I think it's Ray, as someone Ortland, a, a scholar, a biblical studies scholar in one of these InterVarsity Press, like series in biblical theology, has a book just called Whoredom. And <laughs> well, it's, it's all, all about the theme in the Bible. Sure. Well, he says it three times here in one sentence, right? Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Yeah, so if you're preaching this, you just want to get up and just get people used to it. I'm going to yeah. say, whoredom, 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 whoredom. So much that it loses its meaning. Yes. Yeah, so so it's interesting, too, because here, again, this is sort of the Lord's, it's one of these great prophetic actions, right? So in taking Gomer, that's not a very, like, sexy whore, whoredom name either, Gomer. Like, you know, uh, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was in ancient Israel, but all I can think of is Gomer Pyle. Well, you know, I like, don't think surprise, the Lord surprise, surprise. I don't think the Lord's going for sexy here. This is not like you're going to enjoy this, Hosea. You know, he's he's showing Hosea what um, his relationship to his people is like. And to do that, he's going to marry a whore. And it's perfectly appropriate, therefore, that she has this awful name. So it's like, Israel, you're not even a sexy whore. If I wanted a sexy <laughs> whore, I'd have the Egyptians or the Phoenicians. Exactly. You're like a gomer. <laughs> So yeah, so here you have this, This he takes this, assuming, prostitute uh, as his wife, and then he's going to have children that will be, uh, that will reflect this, you know, the messiness of this relationship and, and the 
names of the children sort of, uh, you know, kind of indicate the ways that that mm-hmm. things are not going to be good. Uh, you're yeah. not there, there's going to be punishment. There's not going to be forgiveness. There's going to be no mercy. And like, you know, for instance, when you're low Ami, right? Uh, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Hmm. I wonder what's like, that's like at a cocktail party. Hi, I'm low and me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excuse me. We, I'm going to get another cocktail. We heard about you. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's, I, I just don't feel like we name people like that now. Well, the, the, this is what I was saying earlier about needing to read on a little further in Hosea to really catch the gospel here, because this is all judgment, right? This is all law. This is, you know, Hosea has been told to, marry this woman who will be unfaithful to him. Like he knows that going in and that's because Israel, the Lord's chosen people have been acting like a whore and running after other gods. So therefore to sort of uh, show that Hosea must marry a woman who's going to run after other men. And then he's told to name them these names, right? No mercy because the Lord will have no mercy on his people. The other one is not my people because, um, according to the Lord Israel in their unfaithfulness is not his people and he will not be their God. But then from that low point here in chapter one, if we, if we can sort of skip ahead a little bit and which is what, what I'll do in the sermon I'll preach on this section is that if we can get to chapter two, verse 23, we get the other side of this. We will, we'll, um, if I'll, if I can have a chance to start, reading here verse uh, 21, it says, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. And there is the gospel, like this people of whoredom who deserve nothing other than not my people get to be God's people again. Yeah. And there's an allusion to this in in the end of the reading where, you know, where he says, you know, when the sand, when the people of Israel are like uh, the sand of the sea, which can't be measured and numbered and a place where it said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said children of the living God. So there's an allusion to this is how it's going to be. And so that, yeah, I mean, there, this is kind of, I guess the idea that here, uh, the no of God is contained within a broader yes. Like there will be another yes. Like this no, it's almost like this no is necessary for the yes. Um, yeah, and there's that you know that the, the the judgment gives way to mercy for God's people. The prophetic word is hardly ever an easy one to hear because it's a word of truth, and th- 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 this is a word to Israel about their sin. And then you have to hear that before you can recognize your need for a savior yeah and it's why also i mean the gospel is only good news for sinners right it's it's only it's only in when we realize our unfaithfulness that god's fidelity means anything Mm. right On to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. We got the additional 16 through 19, I guess, is an option. Paul here is talking to this 
church at Colossae, and he's talked to them about Jesus and how they've been rescued from dark, darkness into light and the supremacy of Jesus and how the firstborn of creation also became firstborn of the dead and, and reconciled them. And then he says that they need to continue in Christ and make sure that no one takes them captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, or I love this, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. And he goes back again and talks about the fullness of the deity in Christ. And there's some interesting imagery too about circumcision, uh, that likening sort of what happens in, in to Christians as what happens in circumcision, like that, that, the, like I guess as the foreskin kind of comes off, the power of the flesh comes off. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, these, he, are great, these are very great images this week. He's also, I mean, he he doesn't um, pull any punches. He, he says, you know, you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Like this, this disease was unto death. Like this was not something that you know you need to wash up from. This is something that requires resurrection. And it says, you know, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Like only, only one thing happens when something gets nailed to the cross. And that is the end of that thing. That is the, the death of that thing. And something altogether new is raised up. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you could see that. I, I think like one way you could read a lot of these epistles, right, is that is Paul's own struggle with Jesus plus something kind of philosophy or theology, right? That Jesus is great, but if you just had... Jesus paired up with this, right? Then you'd be, then you'd really have arrived, right? And, and, you know, we see that in Galatians, we see it other places. It, here, I, it, you know, it's, it seems like there's at least that kind of temptation that there's some sort of teachings or, 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 or something in the air. Some new idea, right? Yeah. That is going to eclipse or, or, or make Christ. So there's always this kind of, he's saying, remember what Christ did. And then he's always going back to how everything is in Christ, right? How the fullness of, it's like, he's always flipping back to what he did and who Christ is, the, the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the person of Christ. And in some sense, that seems like his treatment for the wavering and the temptation of sort of, uh, you know, unhealthy spiritual supplements to, to well, Jesus. That's why the the death and life paradigm is so important to him that you're you're not a better you than you were because of Christ you only exist now in Christ that that is all that you are your identity is solely there so any other thing that you might use t- t- to identify yourself is actually identifying with something that is dead nailed to the cross that that is not you you do not exist outside of who Christ has made you now yeah, absolutely. That that's that that's your primary identity. That that's and you you can think of also elsewhere where he talks about it not just individually but sociologically. You know, now there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Christ is the primary psychological category, spiritual category, sociological category. This is the new you, the new reality. It, it's interesting too. I think if you're in a congregation that's kind of cosmopolitan and is into sort of you know the New York Times book review and. And into being sophisticated, you can Walker almost Percy, you know. yeah, walk right. You can almost see like, well, I mean, all this focus on on Jesus. This sounds parochial. This sounds like you know we're going to be terrible at cocktail parties, or you know we're going to be the people that are you know talking about things that you don't talk about in polite society or polite company. But it's, you know, Von Balthazar 
the great Catholic theologian says that, you know, it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ that we see God. And from there, we can see God everywhere in the world. He talks about Christ as the pure form by which God manifests himself in all creation. So far from, I think, making you see less truth in the world, you're, I think what von Balthasar is saying, and you see this in, in the book of Colossians, all things were made in him, for him, reconciled. Really, you'll be the most intellectual person as the Christian, or you'll see truth in the most places, right? You, you won't be parochial. In fact, in, in some sense, this is the only way to not be parochial, right? To, to, that you see, you start with the particular and then it opens up uh, truth everywhere you find it. Sure. And I mean, if you're, if you're, the, the, there's, there's probably nothing more parochial, quote unquote, to use the word in the way that you, you, you're using it than like limiting what you believe is true to what you can see and touch. Um, there, there, if you actually believe in an almighty God, then what could be, what, what other thing could you want to talk about? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's sort of the, the, the sort of temptation of the empty, the, the philosophy, the empty philosophy, the deceit, or the, I love that phrase, the elemental forces, spirits of the universe, that these things often promise. It's like that line in Top Gun where it says, Maverick, your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash. <laughs> you know, these things are, they write checks that they can't cash, right? Like, mm. uh, and, and although Christ seems, like he's an empty checkbook from the world's perspective. It's actually, he's the fullness of God and, and the firstborn of all reality. And you'll note that in Top Gun Maverick, they have replaced Kelly McGillis with, um, oh, I'm going to blow it now. Uh, you're going to have to edit this part out. <laughs> that trailer is awesome. Yeah, yeah. I love. I forget who the actress is too, but that trailer is, I've watched that um, trailer like seven Jennifer times. Jennifer Connelly, that's who. Jennifer Connelly, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kelly McGillis has had hard days since her, that movie. Her acting skill was writing checks that her. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, absolutely. The box office wouldn't cash. On to. The Gospel of Luke, we have chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, and we've got the Lord's Prayer, you know, the, Lord, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, and then this great parable where he says, suppose a, a, one of you's got a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, a friend of mine's arrived, I've got nothing to set before him, and he says, don't bother me, the door's been locked, my children are with me in bed, I can't get up, you know, I got nothing to give you, um, but his persistence, he's going to get up and give him whatever he needs, you know, yeah. because he's his friend. And and then he says, you know, ask and and it will be, you seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened. And he has an interesting question about, you know, which of you, if your child asks for a fish, will give you a snake instead of a fish? Or if a child asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And, and he sort of says, this is your attitude, ought to be your attitude in prayer. So it's a really interesting kind of pairing of the Lord's Prayer and then these interesting parables about the posture of prayer and these, and, and this character that knocking at midnight. And I think because of the way that it's organized, it can be confusing to read. So we get the Lord's prayer first. So we know that sort of prayer is at issue here. Like that's what we're t talking about. How, how do we pray? This is how you should pray. And then he tells this story about the friend who doesn't want to come answer the door 
it's nighttime. He's all snuggled up or whatever. And it took, it took me a close reading before I realized something that should have been obvious the first time. We're so used to Jesus telling parables that start the kingdom of God is like that, that we're so, this is a very easy story to read and think, gosh, is that what God is like? That like, well, if he doesn't answer your prayer the first time, just keep on praying and you'll annoy him enough that he'll eventually come through the door. But then we get this coda to that story about the fish and the egg and the snake. And then you realize that he's not saying that this is what God is like. He's saying this isn't what God is like. He's saying God is ready to answer your prayer. He is, he is always available. He's 24 seven. He has not locked the door. He's not like the friend in this story who will only get up when you pound on the door. God is better than you, you know, who are evil, by the way, um, you who would never give your child um, this uh, terrible thing when they ask for, for something nice. If you who are evil know how to good, give good gifts, how much more will a loving God give you? So the, the story of the friend who's asleep is not what God is like at all. It's in fact the opposite of that. Yeah, it is interesting too, right? Because the child wouldn't know what it might not be able to discern the what's the you know good thing to eat and what's not, right? The fish or the you know like anything you know a child would put anything in its mouth, right? <laughs> I mean, does it? He asks for a fish and asks yeah. for an egg. But yeah, who will give him? But who will give him? You know, because a child like you know you could give. I, there's I was reading some commentaries. There's like a, a scorpion could be curled up and look like an egg. You know, like there I. So, but there, I was, you think about like how you, you know, when you're a kid, you know, what do you want to be? I want to be a cowboy. Well, it's good that like when you're 18, you go to college, you're 17, you're applying for college. You're like, oh, your parents go, well, now here's the money. We, we, we saved it for rodeo school. Like we already, you know, like you said you wanted to be a cowboy. You to Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have it. Yeah. It, it, like in, in some sense, you know, like the, the requests, uh, we, we're, we're like the little child. Like we don't mm. even know what to pray for at times. Right. We trust that the Absolutely. one who's the true parent, you know, the, the true father will provide in, in ways that actually reflect wisdom and not just our own, um, kind of consumer desires. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, anymore, basically the, the only form my prayer requests take really, I mean, obviously other than like the obvious, like healing and the, that sort of thing. I pray for my will to be conformed to his. And that's, that's sort of my cover hope prayer implying. I don't even know what would be good for me. Um, so please do better than what I know. And it would be great if in that you would help my will be conformed to yours so that what I want is what you want. And then I'll be happy. And what you've given me will actually be the right thing for me too. Yeah, it's interesting too on the on the first story about the the guy and his friend Robert Capon has this great uh, reflection in his book on the parables. He says, uh, "Look at the way Jesus actually puts it. I tell you, even if he will not get up and give you the bread because he is your friend, yet on account of your shamelessness, he will he will rise and give you as much as you need. What is this shamelessness but death to self?" People lead reasonable, respectable lives who are preoccupied first and foremost with the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Do not obtrude upon their friends' privacy at midnight. And why don't they? Because that would display them as thoughtless beggars and make them look bad. 
But if someone were dead to all that, if he could come to his friend's house with nothing more than the confession that he was a total loss of a host or anything else, then precisely because of his shamelessness, his total lack of a self-regarding life, he would be raised out of that death by his rising friend. That's a really interesting insight on that, that who would go and say, I'm going to wake you up because I was an idiot. You know, like most of us wouldn't go to the friend. And yet that does seem to be uh, the posture that would be a better posture, more like the publican than the Pharisee. Right. There's definitely wisdom there. The whole idea of, um, of, of we are so addicted to not wanting to owe anyone anything. Like we're always have an eye on the scales of our lives and, and trying to keep them even at worst and hopefully have other people owing us. So the idea that we would have a need so profound that we would have to show up at somebody's house late at night would be mortifying because then we would owe them something. And that complicates our relationship with God because of course, uh, by his gift to Jesus Christ, we we feel the weight of those scales shifted and that we owe something profound. And this, um, I think that Capon's interpretation there is really helpful that that how about you just give up on paying back, acknowledge that, you know, you totally messed up and you're never, you're, you're totally out of bounds here, but, you know, throw yourself on the mercy of the court. And guess what? We have a merciful God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think one of the hardest things in the Lord's prayer is, you know, Lord, you know, forgive us our, our debts as we forgive our debtors, or our trespasses, our sins, which you know, on one level could be devastating if we're honest about our own resentments and our own kind of grudge keeping and things like that. And that you, yet you think of Jesus, the one who says the Lord's prayers is also the one who prays to the father who begins father, you know, our father who is the one that says, father, forgive them. They know yeah, not what he they intercedes do. for us. Yeah. That he, that thank God we have a generous judge in in jesus uh so yeah all the more uh reason for us to treasure forgiveness amen my friend thanks for doing this with me and blessings in your preaching and to our listeners today thank you very much thanks for listening to the synaxis podcast if you like what you heard please go to itunes give it a rating write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Nick for coming on the podcast. And thanks again to you for listening to Snacksis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.